You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns, right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. Hi, everybody. It is the first Monday in October, the beginning of the Supreme Court's new term, October 5th. 2015, we are your co-host, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. That's me. Who finally solved all of our sound issues, we hope, for tonight. Yeah, it was really tough. This is Future <laughs> Theater Live, folks, uh, brought to you live on the digital, on the um, Dark Matter. Dark Matter. Dark Matter. Dark Matter. Dark Matter. Digital, digital, digital radio. It's a tough one. It's a tongue twister. Hey, you know what? I already did this in the first intro we did when we first started. Like, did it work? Yeah, no, but I said it perfectly, and I also said PSN Radio, and I also thanked Keith Rowland. For being so patient. I, I would have done all that, but, um, so this is the Dark Matter, uh, Dark Matter Digital Network. You can't Network. say it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so screwed up tonight. The Dark Matter Digital Network. Technical issues everywhere. Go ahead, Bill. And PSN Radio um, from the banks uh. of speaking beautiful downtown Soberry with our producer, um, the great Angel Espino, the Jackal. Say hello, Jackal. Laughing all the way. And our, How you doing, it's, everybody? Um, is it our just my... Is rock photographer, and we'll talk about Ingo Swan, Robert Knight. That's our okay, guest. Now, is it just my earphones work? Is Bill very, very loud and needs to pull back a little bit? Pull back, Bill. Pull back. Uh, how's that? Is that any better? Just I a little like... more. Just, you, you're coming in really hot. Hot, hot, hot. How's hot. that? Any better? better. Caliente, much, but not in a good way. Better. Caliente. Yeah, I mean, it's been a rock and roll week, and nobody ever thanks Keith for all oh, the well, good things he does. Yes. Also, tonight uh, on Art Bell, which follows this show, um, Tess Gerritsen is the guest, the writer. It's going to be a, an amazing show, and they're going to also have uh, news, as usual, with Amy. So it's going to be cool. But I can't get over my excitement at, at our guest tonight, Robert Knight. I have been inundated all day with Robert Knight stuff. So it's going to be very, very exciting, I think. Yes, I think. Tess Gerritsen, the crime writer? Mm-hmm. The novelist? Mm-hmm. Yes. Having written Riverman and Signature Killers and Jeffrey Dahmer and Arthur Shawcross and Henry Lee Lucas. And, and I, I did ask you, I, I did ask you last murders. Uh, and I asked you last week to maybe like go a little softer on the, all the books you've written. We need to get some better web stuff up for you so that you can just send people to your website and they can just see the list. Then you don't have to repeat it all the time. No, I think I'm just making a point about being a crime writer. I see. I see. Well, Okay, do you have topics for tonight? Or does Angel perhaps have topics for tonight? Or um, we're not going to talk about what happened this week um, on the Belgab Forum because I think at this point our audience um, has separated into people who go to the Belgab Forum and people who don't. So I think we'll just talk to the larger audience tonight. That is everybody. Well, well, don't, you, don't you think? No, I mean, who's the guest on tonight say, again? Who's, who's the guest on tonight? Robert, Robert Knight is the guest Robert tonight. Robert Knight? Robert, okay, Robert, Robert Knight, K-N-I-G-H-C. I'm going to tweet that out. That's, oh, very, yeah. uh, that's very exciting. He, he did a documentary about Ingo Swan, 
that um, is really very intriguing. I mean, I know I knew Ingo Swan, but this is very, very intriguing about the life of Ingo Swan and his relationship to Harold Putoff in the SRI and remote viewing. Let me bring up something about Ingo. And I don't know whether I'll have the courage to ask Robert. I don't know whether it's an appropriate question, but since it's just just (laughs) the three of us right here, um, when Bill called Ingo or, or made contact with Ingo back during the Corso era, Ingo was very, very angry, short, mean, whatever to Bill. Remember? No, 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 no. There were two times I spoke to Ingo on the phone. This was the time when I was doing Worker in the Light with George Nori, and I had to talk to Ingo about helping us with the book, and he was very angry. But when uh-huh. I spoke to no, but I spoke to him about Phil Corso. It was Ingo who called me, and just began to share material based on what he'd read in Day After Roswell. Wow, that was, I didn't I, I didn't know those were two entirely separate calls. Two separate two separate calls. Um, and now that we know, you know, the fate of Worker in the Light and how it came to be and how it came to not be, it it makes a little more sense. You know right, that, it, right. but, yeah, but anyway, this particular documentary is done by three fellows. Tonight's guest, Robert Knight, and um, and also weirdly, um, uh, Nick Cook. Nick Cook is part of it, right? Uh, so, and then the third fellow, I'm looking up his name right now, but I'll, and I'll give it to you in a minute. It's um, uh, it's escaped me. Um, and it's and it's a really short little thing that we were sent. I don't know whether it's a private video or not. And if so, if it's not private, it it will be wonderful to look at for anybody that wants to look at it. But there's some bombshells in this documentary, little footage that we saw tonight. Oh yeah, real big bombshells, and I'll save them for the show. But I did want to bring up. Um, I mean, uh, Ingo Swan got sick at the end of his life, as many of us do, um, and. I thought that was the reason that he had just had it with being a celebrity, basically. Um, but I think this documentary was done, we'll find out, toward the end of his life, basically, right? Yes, because he looked markedly different in this documentary, even when this was back in the 1990s, uh, after the remote viewing whole program had um, been officially taken off the books. Well, now, it's always whispered about when you're in private parties that Ingo Swan was homosexual because back in the day, that was considered something before Jerry Seinfeld. Um, there was something wrong with it, People, some people thought. And now, now we know better. But supposedly that would have colored his personality quite a lot. Possibly. I mean, Ingo Swan, when I spoke to him, we were living on the boat. When I spoke to him, he said he just wanted to be – this would have been 2002, easily 2002. He said he just wanted to be private. He didn't want to be bothered. No more radio appearances, no more interviews, no more anything. Yeah, He was just very, very angry and said he just wanted to be left alone. Well, the reason I bring up the homosexuality is only because he has that trouble. You know, in the little documentary, they show lots of – uh, earlier photos, and he has that troubled look of a of a gorgeous youth who's in New York, who's in a society that feels pushed to the margins, like a Ginsburg. Um, I don't think Burroughs was homosexual. I don't know for sure, but some people were just haunted by it because they just felt that um, 
you know, their parents would hate them and the society would stone them and so forth and so on. So it was a tough time. And I wondered. Well, well, that's what New York. Well, that's what at least New York was like before the Stonewall riots. Well, before, during, after. I'm sure there's still pockets mm-hmm. of of um, inhumanity, but um, but it just seems like Ingo Swan. The way he says in the documentary, uh, when you come to New York, you find out that if you're not somebody, you're nobody. Right. And then he, yeah, and then he says really, really ruefully, once you come to be somebody. Then you realize it's it's not so good. It's not you know it's not so hot. Well, yes, that was his attitude when we spoke. I mean, that was exactly yeah. what his attitude was. I mean, he was a he became a real New Yorker, and <clears throat> he's absolutely right. Coming to New York, you want to be somebody. I mean, if you can th- make that's it what there, you want. yeah, if you can make it there, that's really what you want. And coming back to New York, you want to be even a bigger somebody than you were when you left New York. Yeah, well. Well, the reason I think tonight's show is going to be so interesting is because this very fascinating man, Ingo Swan, was filmed by another really fascinating man, our guest tonight. Um, he has ta- he's, His livelihood has been as a rock and roll photographer. And if you cl- click the link on futuretheater.com, um, you will that where it says rock rock photographer. You'll see a montage, a a uh, montage of all the photos that he's taken mm-hmm. of everybody who's anybody who's ever picked up a uh, an instrument and basically, you know, poured his soul out. And these pictures are very soulful. And there's so many of them, and it's really they really they really are. I yeah. I, I have to agree. It's like you're looking. You're looking, you know what you're looking at, at least the way it struck me, the pain, the pain of an error. No, I think you're looking at, you're looking at, um, sort of sex in motion. And by sex, I mean intellectual passion. Really? I just thought we were looking at music. No, 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 I mean, I mean, he's really captured something. And, and and poor Angel has a migraine hmm. headache, or he would have looked at the Oh, Angel. <laughs> I have, yeah, you have no idea. It's so bad. Yeah, I do. I drove, I drove home today with one eye closed, because my no. left side of my head just was throbbing and killing you know what me. So drug, I was literally like a pirate driving home. You know what drug there used to be that they don't make anymore that used to really solve the problem? Or Cocaine? Ch- no. Oh. Chewable Excedrin... Um, for migraines, they were chewable. They would come in these little packets, and you would chew them. And with your saliva, you wouldn't get sick and throw them up. Because I would always take them, have a migraine. The migraines are bad. I'd be throwing up. And mm. this way, that's how that's how bad it was for me today. I was about to throw up at work. Oh yeah, so bad. Yeah. It's yeah awful. So, but but there are many drugs on the market now. Um, all kinds of for migraine on the shelf, and. What people who suffer do is they just get them all and try different ones. Uh, antihistamines work really well, too. For sometimes it is actually a sinus infection or a sinus flare-up. That it could kind be. Of I, do, I, do it. Suffer from, I do suffer from sinus congestion. Sometimes, but, yeah, sometimes yeah. the antihistamines work. But when you have time, here's the thing. Every photograph he takes, I mean, of course, he's taken sheets of photographs, but the ones that are in the montage show that moment, those those key money points where you just you feel the feel the guy feeling the music. They are all pretty much all guys, but um, but that <laughs> but 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 Robert is our guest, and that's why I put the photo of him looking cool in in black leather on um, the website there, and and 
he had a UFO sighting when he was very young, which got him mm-hmm. off on the path of the paranormal. And he eventually studied remote viewing and had to put it, unfortunately, to work to solve a crime that involved his best friend, who was a DJ. And maybe he's a DJ you might actually know. Um, let's see where he was a DJ. And his body was found off of Catalina. I don't want to give too much of the story away. But um, because of this, his rock and roll connections, his, his friend was a super-duper DJ. Let me find – okay, the link on futuretheater.com takes you to the Palm – what is it called here? The, uh, the Amazing Story link. That takes you to Las Vegas Sun. Okay, and it's where the, um, the police called in the Nevada Remote Viewing Group – and they're headed by somebody we have to have on the show, a woman named Angela Thompson-Smith. Mm-hmm. And she was involved with the Princeton Research mm-hmm. Group and also Bigelow. So we have to have her on. We have to find out stuff about Bigelow and stuff about the Princeton Research Group. So anyway, she's the head of the Nevada Remote Viewing Group. And our guest tonight is a member of the group. And they remote viewed where this – this, okay, so let me tell you who the person is, um, who the – Sadly, who the victim was. Um, uh, let's see here. I'm, I'm going down. It's a very nice article. You'll love it. Ay, ay, ay. Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, read the article. You know, go it's to the long- site. Read the article. It's a long <laughs> article. But, oh, but then, oh, and they also the nice- found the murderer, by the way. They found the guy who murdered him. Yes, exactly. That's, that's the whole. So the article is kind of a mini detective story, but a mini detective story with a real paranormal twist. Of course, last week's guest, Paul Smith, who is a remote viewer also. Yes. Weird, huh? Would say, would say, no, 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 there's nothing paranormal about it. It's completely normal. You just don't know how to reach that level of normal. Well, tonight, one of the things, and I'll just continue to tell you stuff from the documentary because I don't even know whether it's, I can, okay, the um, uh, close buddy Stephen B. Williams, Stephen B. Williams, who was a successful DJ pulling $250,000 a year at a Denver radio station in the 1980s. So, not that, so it's a different DJ. Okay, so. Highway robbery. Okay. so let's see here. So what 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 did Bill just ask? No, it, one of the things that I was saying was that um, uh, Paul Smith, our guest from last week, would have said this is not the paranormal. This is the normal. Right. Only okay. People don't know how to use their normal right. when it comes to remote viewing. But the article itself is a fascinating detective story. Okay, but let me insert from the documentary. There's a fellow named Michael A. Persinger. Another guy we have to look up and do some Googling on because he says that they were able to to not do a CAT scan on Ingo while he was under, but I guess probably an EEG because they could know what parts of the brain were lighting up. Right, exactly. Yes. And so, so what he said was the, uh, the occipital temporal area, the right hemisphere, would light up and Ingo would know the feelings. So he'd know the feelings when it was actually – they could actually look at, at it on the monitor stuff. And so this guy, Kurt Persinger, says that they can simulate that in ordinary people, ordinary people, and they can remote view like right on the spot. So we need to look into that too. Well, what's so fascinating, what struck me about that comment – was what Persinger was saying reminded me of what Wilder Penfield was doing in Montreal in the 1950s, literally stimulating parts of the brain with low-voltage electrodes so that the person 
would be in a different place, but be aware that he was in an operating room with Wilder Penfield um, undergoing a, um, a, a procedure, but he'd smell the smells, speak to the people, the people would, it's that they would be in the room. In fact, folks who want to read about this, and uh, I'll tell you what book it's in. It's in the book, I'm Okay, You're Okay. And so uh, if you can find that book, it's, uh, I'm sure it's- Are, are you sure that's the book? That's the book, because the whole book- I'm Okay, is, You're Okay? Really? Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm Okay, You're Okay, because that's the book that is ultimately based on Wilder Penfield's research. Now we now know that research was supported uh, by MK Ultra, but that's not the point. Uh, I'm not going to go into history about that, but the point is that it was the stimulation of the brain in certain kinds of areas that actually elicited not just memories, but elicited the visceral sensations of being where the memories took you. Well, weirdly, again in the documentary, Ingo Swan seems to act or seems to suggest that that sort of thing would just come upon him because he talks about stepping out of a car and he was going to in Telluride. He was going to look up and see the beautiful night sky. So he has one foot on the running board, and he's putting one foot into the snow. And he says, "And then I'm gone. I'm I'm out there. I'm in uh, the solar system." And he's space. out in outer space. Well, Paul Paul Smith said the same thing about having been in a session with Ingo, and then he's in New York, and then he in the session he was remote viewing a beautiful spot in Ireland. And it was so magnificent, he wanted to go back there. And so he's walking through Times Square, and suddenly he's there at that spot. And he feels as though his body is there at that spot. And and, and he just caught himself as he fell, and he was about to fall off the sidewalk in, in, um, on the curb. And he realized that was one of the dangers of remote viewing too intently because what happens is you turn remote viewing into an out-of-body experience. Well, is he remote viewing or is he just uh, daydreaming? Well, Having memories and things. A question we should have asked Paul Smith, but he said he was actually remote viewing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And um, it's all... I'm sorry about our little technical problems. We had a bunch right right at the beginning of the show, which, so what, right? We fixed mm-hmm. them all. Keith was my fault. It was. It was. Every, it was not. It was not Angel's fault. Um, my Skype got flaky, and I think Microsoft. Just, Microsoft exactly, yep. and um, it was not Keith Rowland's fault. Uh, he's cool as a cucumber throughout the whole Keith thing. Keith is the man. He is, and people don't realize that we're we're on Keith's network, folks. This is his empire. He's not somebody that just wandered in off the streets, uh, according to the crazy people in Belgab. Um, he doesn't get the respect he deserves. That's, well, you know what it is. It, that's true. It, but see, okay, and and so should we go? We should not go over our our half hour point though. That's why why I brought it's up our half little hour right now delay. Right, yeah. Right, right. So I won't go into um, the truth versus the frauds and stuff like that. But oh, I will. Good. Good, yeah. Um, but I am going to. I'm going to write something about it uh, in preparation for our write show. A blog. Next, well, exactly, because our show next week is going to be a roundtable, an Emma Woods roundtable, and fans and foes alike are welcome to come to the roundtable. It's going to be quite interesting. To the point where, as I gather it up and as we prepare, um, it may go for two shows. It may go for, uh, for this the following week. We may actually. 
pick it up the following week. We have so, that much stuff. So I know about Alfred and Emma. So who else is joining? Well, us? I'm not going to tell because it's a it's going to be. It's actually going to be a play within a play within a play. We have some directors involved. It's going to be amazing. Amazing. Book reviews, uh, state of the art, hypnotism. You, you can't go wrong. It's going to be great. <laughs> okay. Truth versus fiction. With that, um, Bill. <laughs> yeah. So we should take our break probably. Um, I'm such a nervous wreck. I hope, I hope everything goes well with tonight's show. Really okay, do. well, that's Let's good. We started off great. We started off great as it was, you know. I know. So, I know. Uh, so do I. Oh, we are your co-hosts, Bill. Uh, that's me and Nancy Burns. And we are broadcasting on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. And we will be back with our guest, Robert Knight, after these very important messages. See you on the other side. This is James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth-oriented discussions. We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network live at 8 p.m. Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on darkmatterradio.net, jameswagger.com for yours truly, CapricornMembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic. Truth is truth. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. The UFO phenomenon, either we like it or not, is already very much part of our reality. I've been on panels with uh, military people who you know, claim that they've seen the aliens buzzing our missile silos. They have very large eyes, and you know, I found their stare extremely difficult to bear. This is Martin Willis, the host of Podcast UFO, and we are here on the Dark Matter Radio Network every Wednesday from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is my commitment to bring you an entertaining weekly show that takes a hard look at the UFO phenomena. Are they extraterrestrial? Well, are they interdimensional? Are they time travelers or something we have not even thought of yet? We explore these questions with interesting guests and witnesses from all around the globe. In addition, we bring you weekly UFO news with Open Minds TV, Alejandro Rojas. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep your eyes to the sky.
And we're back on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio with our guest, Robert Knight. So, Robert, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, it, it is fascinating to talk to you about Ingo Swan because one of Ingo Swan's pupils who now runs his own um, remote viewing conference and remote viewing school was Paul H. Smith, Dr. Paul H. Smith. And... Um, so this is great. We're kind of bookending the whole story of Ingo right. Swan. How Paul did you was a very to... dear and long friend of mine as well, so I'm very familiar with Paul. <laughs> well, um, uh, it, it's funny. One of the stories that Ingo tells in, in, the, in the teaser, in the teacher documentary yeah. uh, that you filmed, uh, and Nancy brought it up uh, in the introduction to uh, your coming on, is uh, how Ingo tells the story of riding, of he's getting out of a car, it's a beautiful dark night, he's on standing on the running board, and he puts his foot down, and what he realizes is he's out in space, he's out in the solar system, he's, he's staring at space, in space, and it reminded me of a story that Paul Smith told me years and years ago about how he'd been, he was in New York uh, in a session with Ingo, and he was, um, and in this session, he was remote viewing some magnificent spot in Ireland, just a ma- beautiful spot. And Paul said he was so desirous of that spot that he began, that as he was walking through Times Square, he spontaneously began to remote view it. But the problem was he suddenly found himself there in Ireland, and he said he just managed to catch himself before he fell into the street because he'd actually left his body, and he said that's the danger, the borderline between remote viewing and an actual out-of-body experience. You betcha, and I have had many stories told to me by Ingo that were just extraordinary. I had about a 15-year relationship, friendship with him, um, very, very close, going back and forth to New York, visiting him and him coming out to Los Angeles. Well, well Robert, for, how, did, how, did you, how did you two meet? Well, it's an interesting story. It goes back to the birth of sort of the Internet and news groups when it first started. And I was working with a band called Skinny Puppy, and <laughs> Ogre uh, was an industrial band. And Ogre and I were thinking about building a sort of conspiracy interactive game, much like a game like Myst. And so we started to talk about all kinds of places in the United States that one could go in this board game. And then we, of course, talked about Area 51, and then I brought up remote viewing, and he didn't know what that was. And I said, Mm -hmm. well, it's just sort of being disclassified. And there are two names associated with it that I think might be able to get a hold of these people. One was Colonel John Alexander, who was up in Los Alamos, and the other was Ed Dames, who was sort of just coming out of teaching in, uh, in that New Mexico area. And mm-hmm. so we, Ogre reached out to John, and I reached out to Ed, and he faxed me about 30 pages of stuff and basically said he wanted to come out to L.A., that he needed to talk to me because somehow I knew something that he was supposed to do, and I needed to tell him what it was. <laughs> and really? he came out to L.A., and I invited an actor friend of mine named Brad Dourif, you might know from Oh, Chattanooga. Brad Dourif, yes. He was just on the X-Files. We saw him on the X-Files the other night. Right, he's a very dear friend of mine, and I invited him. Uh, it's for, the, for my first meeting with Ed Dames, along with his other half. And, um, and Ed basically said, what am I supposed to do? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, I remote you do. You, you're supposed to do something. And I said, well, have you ever been on Art Bell? And he goes, what's an Art Bell? 
And oh, I my said, eye. well, if you ever went on Art Bell, I think people would wow. know what remote viewing is in a two seconds. So wow. I called somebody I knew that knew Art and arranged for Ed to go on, and the rest is history there. Wow, but, it sure is. And right. have you followed Ed Dames' career since the Art so Bell? we friends, but I haven't seen him for a while because, um, you know, I've been working on the Ingo thing, and there's, you know, Ingo sort of described the remote viewing community as a whole on a global level as a bit of a pissmeyer, he called it, uh, <laughs> where there's almost sort of like a competition between different groups that were working on remote viewing at the same time unknown to each other. Because there right. were several programs simultaneously instituted by the intelligence community. Uh-huh. And um, one with Joe McMonagle and all those guys, and then another bunch over here, and then Ingo and his crew. So there's sort of some rivalry there. So... If you're sort of like Ingo's guy, you're around them, and if you're around Joe, you're around Joe's guy. I mean, you know, well, how it's a did bit you of a go thing. From, how did you go from Ed to Ingo? Well, what it was is I posted some things on the Internet for Ed. He said, I don't know how this news thing works, but can you post this for me? So right. I posted something called Ed Dame Sets the Record Straight, mm-hmm. which he said some words in there that had not been declassified, like some names of some classified topics. Mm-hmm. And I got... Actually, Paul Smith got a hold of me, and John Alexander got a hold of me, and they said, "What are you doing? What is this? Who are you? Why are you doing this?" Well, wait, did and, you? Was uh, this posted? I just said I did it as a favor for Ed Dames, but I became familiar, um, and I helped Ed obviously, and I came up with a couple of other suggestions for him. I said, "Could you train remote viewing via video?" Which I think he might have gone on and done quite well. Um, but, but when you but, posted that information, did you post it on a public bulletin board of some kind? Yeah, back in the day, you know, there were bulletin boards. There weren't right. like www. This was like a news group. And I put right, do you remember the, the name of the news group? I don't, but you could probably find it. But it caused a bit of a problem. And then, of course, these people were calling me going, what have you done? Why, why did you, who are you? What have you done? You know? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I did that as a favor. But through that, I met. Ed, of course, and then we we helped Ed um, with photography and different things. My wife did some photography for him for the covers of his DVDs and whatnot. And he said, what can I do to repay you? And I said, I want to meet Colonel John Alexander. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so he arranged that. And I met John, and through John, he came up with an idea called The Warrior's Path. Let's do a website of very interesting people. So John introduced me to all of the major players that you would probably love to interview or have interviewed some of them, but, you know, mm-hmm. Hal Putoff, Kit Green, um, exactly. yeah. you know, Ed Mitchell, uh, guys that worked at Los Alamos, guys that worked, you know, really key guys in the jigsaw puzzle of interesting mm-hmm. things. And I photographed all of them. And, and then I did some photography for John Alexander for one of his books, and he said, well, what can I do to repay you? And I said, I want to meet Ingo Swan. I just kept hmm. wanting to climb up to get yeah. to where I could do that. And it took three and a half years of continually having John call Ingo to be turned down by Ingo saying, I don't want to meet anybody. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not interested. No, no, no. And finally, I made a breakthrough, and he told me I could meet him for 40 minutes outside mm-hmm. of his five-story building on the Bowery in New York. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when I came... He was sitting out on a stoop, smoking a cigar. He said, okay, sit down. What do you want to know? 
I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, everybody calls me. They want to know something. When am I going to die? Is my wife going to leave me? Who's my girlfriend? You know, all these sort of trivial things. He said, so mm-hmm. what is it that you want to know? And I mm-hmm. thought, boy, I'm really on the spot here. And I looked at him. I said, there is a question that is bothering me. He said, all right, what is it? I said, do psychics ever lose their keys? And he mm-hmm. just burst out in laughing. <laughs> and he yeah. just said, oh, wow. You know, so then we started talking. And then he said, you have a black bag with you. There's three objects in your bag. You right. can take one of them out, but you must leave the other two in the bag. Well, okay. And I said, what are they? And he said, well, you have a bottle of white wine, a bottle of red wine, because you don't know which wine I like, and you have a camera, and you can only bring the bottle of red wine out. Wow. <laughs> so well, did you have a bag the house where it was... For an hour, which turned into seven hours. Yeah. And we just developed a friendship, and it went from there. And you weren't a remote viewing student at that time, right? No, and I didn't. And the other interesting thing is I had no interest in being a remote viewer. And so he found that interesting and fresh, that I didn't come there to be trained. Yeah, yeah. Well, was he still working, quote-unquote, as a remote viewer, or was he retired from that program? Well, I could probably talk about some of it now, but he was working for private people, private consultations, some of it Intel work, some of it non-Intel work some of it for very high-profile people. Hmm. Um, some very interesting things were going down at that time because there was verification on some of the things he did on that book, Penetration. Oh, right. uh, wow. Yes, because one day Ingo got a little envelope under the door, and in there were photos of things on the moon. Ah, oh, really? And he had no idea who it came from, but for in remote viewing, you know, they call that feedback. You know, they got finally some feedback because generally the remote viewers doing classified work never yeah. were given feedback. Other yeah. than they kept getting more pay. Yeah. Wow. I mean, one of the things, uh, one of the things that Ingo told feedback, me, wait, but wouldn't feedback have accelerated the program immensely at the end of the day when you? Look back. Mm, I think when you're doing Intel work, they would prefer I you guess. not know. Because some of the really good remote viewers would only just give data and not even think about what it was they were doing. But at the same time, remote viewing became problematic in that a remote viewer technically could ask the question, why are they asking me the question? Yeah. Which becomes well, problematic when people keep secrets. So Ingo always used to say, people that keep secrets for a living really aren't thrilled by people that can know Read secrets. their minds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, how did you come to film this? I mean, how much, of the, how much film do you actually have um, compared to the... I, I think the one I saw was 17 minutes. What we did is there was a remote viewing conference, and we had some of the key guys going to be there. And I did an edit for the CIA and an edit for some other people that have helped me but wanted to know exactly the tone of what I was doing. And we rushed that so that we could then show it at the IRBA um, convention here in Las Vegas. And so, um, but basically I have about 50 hours with Ingo. um, And then, of course, I tracked down most of the key people that were part of the program uh, and some of which had never gone public before. And then I tracked down some people that I didn't know were part of the program who definitely did not want to be part of the program but were very thrilled that I was doing it because they're still in other classified worlds right now. Wow. Yeah, well, so... 
uh, one of the one of the bombshells in the little piece that I looked at, which I have to bring up, I guess I, I'm free to if if I saw You're free it. Free to talk the... about? I just can't post it yet. Okay. Well, this yeah. is a this is a fellow named he's uh, he's a lieutenant retired Tom McNear. He's a military remote, remote viewer, and he mentions I think this is Ingo Swan's remote viewing session he's talking about that we will find something on mars that was put there okay his exact words were were something on mars that was left there for a reason will Mm -hmm. be discovered someday when it's discovered we will know how it got there i could give you a bit of backstory on this but tom mcnear was probably ingo's best student Mm-hmm. and had the most uncanny ability to name things as well as describe them. He could mm-hmm. outright name them. And he still has his tickets. He still is in the business. He doesn't go public. I think this was one of the first times he ever committed it. Um, and I did an interview with him, um, and it was a fantastic interview. And then we finished, and I walked out, and the wife said, did he talk to you about Mars? And I said, no, what about Mars? And she said, put your camera back up. He never told it. So I put the camera back up, and I said, Tom, tell me about when you did Mars as a target. And the minute I said that on a perfectly calm day, as he's starting to describe being in a crater in Mars, a vortex formed above his head and in the trees that created a mini tornado. And it was just swirling in a circle. And we were all like, you know, kind of embarrassingly laughing, like, what is going on? But you'd look around and there'd be nowhere else, the trees moving. And this thing was swirling. We had to stop the cameras, the whole thing, set up the thing again, set the lights back up. And then I said, Tom, tell me about Mars. And then he told me about this session where he didn't know he was going to Mars. That was the great thing is these guys always would do blind targets. They never Mm -hmm. were were told what the target would be or where it would be. He was quite surprised when he found himself on Mars. Well, and, you yeah. know, I mean, and he is one of those remote viewers that can just get pure data and not, like, go, well, why am I on Mars? Or, you know, he didn't intellectualize it. And that's one of the great things. His ego well, never got in the way of it. Um, I, I pretty much ask this of every remote viewer that comes on because I, I don't think listeners understand when you talk about coordinates, who puts the coordinates in the envelope and does the person putting them in the envelope actually know what the destination is of the coordinates? I understand that they're random numbers and letters and stuff or they're not yeah. necessarily latitude and longitude, but they are supposedly random. But, but does the person who writes them down always know the target? Uh, no, um, it depends. Now, like I can tell you some examples when they were doing some classified work, the target might come from, you know, one or more of an alphabet agency, and it would be given to the person who was coming into contact with either Ingo or Hal Putoff, and then the target would be presented to the remote viewers or remote viewer, depending on how many they had working at it at the same time. They did not need to be in the same room together. Um, And in those situations, they had to do that because when the CIA first started to look at this, they thought something fishy was going on, that the remote viewer was being cued. Reading someone's mind. Reading their mind. You know, they did everything to try to prove that, that it wasn't real including putting Ingo in a submarine under the water off the coast mm-hmm. of California, 800 feet under the water, and he was still able to do things. 
Right, I was everything, and, and of course, your your documentary is going to talk about the two experiments that basically put Ingo Swan on the map uh, yeah. as a, a person who, where you can, re- it's repeatable uh, what he could do, and he was able to repeat it for a particular scientist. Um, that became how he became famous, actually. Yeah, and he um, he was able to actually change things at the same time. Um, you know, from hot to cold, on or off, doing all these other sort of things like this. So it was not only knowing what the target was, he was able to draw, uh, you know, classified mechanisms working with inside of a machine, you know, all these sort of different things. There was a lot of things that rather startled them, but that was the first repeatable experiment in parapsychology, and it really kind of put him on the map there. And it was, you know, pretty interesting. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you was that um, I wanted to get back to what were the, did Ingo describe to you the nature of the photographs that somebody sent him of the moon? Of I what saw he them. They, you were, did. they would be like satellite photographs of structures and that sort of thing. Now, we don't know if someone faked it and sent it to him or if this was feedback, but it was interesting. He got that. And, and this has happened in his life many times because one of the things that he did with Hal Putoff when they launched the Voyager to Mars, he did a remote viewing session that night, what they would find 11 years later. Wow. And in that report, which is quite large because I have it, um, oh, excuse me, it was Jupiter. That was, excuse me, it was Jupiter, uh, not Mars, it was Jupiter he did. And uh, they pres- presented. Carl Sagan with a rather large document and, and Sagan went through that and he said I'm not impressed but Ingo went to Saturn by mistake because he saw a ring around Jupiter and that we know of course there's no ring around Jupiter 11 years right. later put off and Ingo get a call from JPL saying congratulations Ingo was the first person to discover the ring on Jupiter right well right. so I want to get back to those photos because after uh, the book the day after Roswell came out. Yep. Ingo called me and said, "I just want to let you. Uh, I, I just want to let you know." It was a long conversation. I mean, he initiated it that yep. the stuff that Corso was talking about was true. And I said, "Yeah, I believed it was." And he said, "I wanted to confirm that." And then he told me the story uh, that wound up in the book Penetration about his remote viewing the moon. And he said the scary thing was not that he saw these figures, these life forms in a kind of a factory on the moon, but that one of them turned and looked at him as if that person saw him in the stream. And he realized he was being observed remote viewing. And he said, I got out of there really fast. He painted a portrait of the guy, the last painting he ever did, which is on that link that I sent you to the AVA Museum. It's called the Lightbringer. Okay. There you go. And I, over a 12-year period with Ingo, over many different states of mind of nice red wine or whatever, quizzed him over and over and over on the penetration story. Because I just like, Mm. this can't, this is the most outrageous thing. Which part of the story? Well, Mr. Axelrod going to Alaska, having the UFO show up. Exactly. I mean, firing know. at them. Yeah, and that's firing at them. I mean, why would the yeah. UFO be firing at them? That made no sense. Right. So later I was able to verify from another higher source that this in fact happened. So that was verification for me. 
but also Ingo came out to L.A. and we spent three days trying to find the grocery store that he encountered the two twin-looking fellows randomly right. in Los Angeles, and we found it. Which grocery um, store was But I spent a great deal what? of time, funny enough, with Ingo looking for that. That's how serious he was, just to try to retrace those steps. What store was that? Because I always thought it was I, – I always had my idea that it was a particular store um, off Sunset, but what store was it? It is off Sunset, and the thing is is that the way Ingo described it, it had been redone so that when he drove by it, he didn't recognize it. But it was I know actually the store. Yeah, we know the, the, know the, store. the guitar center. <laughs> right, right. I know the store. And, that, and for some reason, as Ingo was – as I was reading it in the book, I said, I know that place. In yeah. fact – yeah, that and and it's a kind of an upscaleish market too, right on Sunset. Yeah, but boy, I tell you, you go there at two in the morning, you would think there was a portal. There are some strange people shopping in there. I gotta well, say, one of my experiences, and that store was, I'm shopping there. I'm coming back from the valley. Yeah. I'm shopping there, and suddenly Jodie Foster comes in, and she yeah. looked like her face was an absolute horror for, for some weird reason, and then she, and and then she looks around and leaves. Yeah. Well, she was it in was the movie portal. Contact. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, it was very interesting. And, and you know, I, I tried to pick at that story over and over and over to just, you know, to get more and more out of it. But um, it was quite a traumatic experience for Ingo. But he was getting a lot of those sort of things where people would say, you know, here's a project. Are you interested in doing it? Um, well, did, was he still alive when um, uh, Tom mentioned this thing on Mars? Well, this is the thing is that, and this is part of the documentary when it comes out because I actually did something, but he arranged for me to meet Tom, and then I did this thing with Tom. And then, of course, I wanted to know from Ingo, did that target originate from Ingo? Like, did Ingo do that, or did mm -hmm. that target come from a much higher up source? That was oh. very important for me to know because, oh. you know, this could have been something that was a, you know, more of a casual thing, or was this something that someone wanted done? And yeah. it had come from a higher source. Oh, really? That was, that, because Ingo hated targets that are non-verifiable. He was very, very scientific, and he felt that if you couldn't verify something mm -hmm. or that someone couldn't verify it, it was garbage. Mm -hmm. So when Ingo first started having these moon things, he was in telepathic communication with something on the moon. And at first he was like, I don't know, is this real, not real, I don't know. But he reported it. He talked to some people, and an arrangement was made with Dr. Michael Persinger up in mm -hmm. Sudbury, Canada. Mm -hmm. And they went up, and they did a database of Ingo Swan's brainwaves over mm -hmm. a period of time, when he was remote viewing, when he was lying, when he was remote viewing a target far away, when he was remote viewing a target close. And they were able to get correlates and, and, and brainwave things to where when he did do remote viewing and he was in psychic contact with something in a very far place, they were able to verify it. And it says that he, he also was able to give feedback that he knows the feeling. He, he would know the feeling of yeah. when his right hemisphere was, you know, remote. Well, I wanted to ask you about that's another question with about Pes uh, Persinger and his work. Is he continuing his work now without Ingo? Yes, and, and he was, you know, I think Ingo made two trips up there, and I just actually talked to Dr. Michael Persinger a couple of weeks ago. Um, but he has now mapped the correlates on Ingo's brain, mm -hmm. where remote viewing happens, and then by wearing a device that you can put on that he made called the octopus on your head, he can stimulate those correlates, 
and people have profound remote viewing effects. People that can sort of remote view, really remote view, and people that and, have and, no psychic ability start having psychic ability. The uh, persinger is able to replicate that in the laboratory. So well, now, that was an interesting outcome. It, it sure is. And the, the fascinating thing to me is he, it sounds though he's duplicating in part, not in whole, but in part, what uh, psychologist um, Wilder Penfield mm. was doing up in Canada at the university, I think it was at McGill, McGill Medical, where um, he was stimulating with low voltage electrodes various parts of the brain and the person seemed to go to the spot that he was talking about even while he he was aware he was in the room with Wilder Penfield. So yeah. if you so if you read the book I'm okay you're okay. I mean that yeah. was the beginning of that kind of pop psychology yeah. if you read that book yeah. the whole beginning it's about Wilder Penfield's experiments at McGill. And then you find out that Wilder Penfield was in part working for the CIA and MK Ultra. So that yep. was information back in the 1950s. And, yep. then, and then you realize that what the CIA was really after, it wasn't as much as, as people thought it was mind control, even though that was the program. Yeah. It was to use electrical stimulation on people because it was involuntary. The person would simply cough up where he was. Yeah. It wasn't as though you could hide it. Yeah. It was spontaneous. And yeah. the CIA was using it because so many spies had come in from the Soviet Union after Korea and also after World War II, but mainly after Korea, yeah, using, Korea. Ameri- yeah, using American identities with their own particular agendas for sabotage. And so mm-hmm. this would be the CIA's plan for penetrating that very, very deep cover. Yeah, I know it's a, quite a controversial program, MKUltra, but there were a lot of sub-programs under it, and for probably pretty good reasons, considering the time, like you said, after the Korean War and there was a fear of infiltration. But some of the people that worked on MKUltra later in the program were obviously some of those people that they tapped when they found out that the Russians were spending an inordinate amount of money on parapsychology. I mean, that's really how the whole program started, is they they thought there was a sort of psychic gap. Right. There was a very famous book about that, too. You know, Psychic right. yeah. Behind the Iron Curtain. Right, right. Yeah. And, well, so and, and some people think it, it was a, that was a, um, an opera, that was a fake operation anyway, just to make us think that. It was like well, a wise That might have been, but the thing is, is it, it did cause everything else to happen because SRI was a direct result of it. Wow. And they put the program together there, and they looked at every imaginable kind of strange thing to see if any of it was real. I mean, they mm-hmm. looked at everything, you know, voodoo, kindalini, yoga, you name it. They looked at it. Well, do you know they how they found – do you know how they found Ingo? I do. Uh, yeah. There was a guy working for the CIA who was in charge of interrogation by the name of Cleve Baxter. He was probably the uh-huh. foremost guy. Oh, Cleve with, Baxter. He's the guy with the plants. That's right. And so Cleve became quite famous by hooking up his electrodes to plants and discovered all kinds of interactivity. And Cleve is in my documentary. I was probably the last person to really I didn't get... realize that, yes. We had him on the show, believe it or not, yes. I think. Yeah. Or... Years ago. Yeah. No, well, I don't know that he can yeah. speak right now. I don't know. He had yeah. a problem, maybe a stroke or something. But I got a great two-hour interview with him. And wow. basically, he said, Ingo sent him a letter and said, well, when you get tired of fooling around with your plants, why don't you work with me? 
and he did some stuff with Ingo and then wrote a letter and circulated it in the intelligence community, and the next thing you know, people were coming in from airplanes <laughs> to Stanford you know, with Ingo. I mean, they, they did a global search. There were three guys that really early on were their guys. One was Ingo. One, believe it or not, was Uri Geller. And the other was a Burbank policeman named Pat Price. And oh, Pat was a, was fabulous, a brilliant fabulous. remote viewer. Uh, I know. Now, did you know, now, did you ever get a chance to meet Puharek, who was kind of the unofficial or the ad hoc Uri Geller handler? I, I think I might have met him with Ed May at an SFE conference in San Francisco years ago, but I'm not 100% sure because I was meeting all sorts of interesting people through John Alexander, because I met, you know, the turning frogs into princes, Bander and Sadler, all of the, mm -hmm. you know, all of that original stuff back in the day of, you know, Warner Earhart training and silver mind control and all that, all of that kind of morphed over into this world, I think. And then there was Jimmy Channon and the um, yeah. first Earth Battalion, too. Yeah, I, I photographed Jimmy. He's interesting. Um, there was a lively debate for a while as to who the guy was and the men that stared at goats. But what was really weird is there was a remote viewing conference in Austin that I went to with Ingo, one of the rare times that Ingo would have come to one of these. And John Ronson, I think, is the guy that wrote the book. Yes, John Ronson. was there yeah. posing as a news crew from Australia right. or somewhere, and they had set up to do interviews with Ingo and put off and a few people, and uh, it, there were some very strange things going down. And, and then Ingo got kind of flashed with a light on stage, like a little one of those pen lights, and he sort of got stumbled on his conversation, and he was quite confused. And I happened oh. to take a picture while he was being interviewed by John Ronson that is very incredible, which I sent to put off for verification, but there's like a bolt of lightning coming out of his head it was wow. now very strange and and then when put off started to do the interview the tone of the interview got so weird i kind of signaled to how to end the interview and he did and they we walked out the, the, well, where it was headed was certainly not newsworthy well yeah. it sounds like it was a kind of a sabotage of some kind it was very strange and then john came out with the book which was sort of a comedy really a dark comedy of making fun of the intelligence community really yeah um yeah. And the, and the movie was a travesty in my mind, you know, because I think oh, it sure. tried to prove it that, you know, remote viewing doesn't work. And then the air report, which was very interesting, tried to make it look like remote viewing didn't work, even though they funded it for 20 years. But the, the, what, the what report? It was called the air report. And there was a guy that was writing the anti-remote viewing thing. And Jessica Utz at UC Davies was writing the pro-remote viewing thing based on statistics and probability. Mm -hmm. And it's a very controversial report, but it was not based on the 400 classified projects that were done with Ingo that are still classified. Mm -hmm. Like, that has never been released as to what those 400 Well, is it were. still classified who tasked Ingo to go to the moon the time that he thought he saw something look back? Well, the story, the way Ingo has told it over and over and over, is he got a phone call from a high-level Washington functionary, whatever you would make of that, who mm -hmm. said you're going to be contacted and some people have some interesting work for you. Are you willing to do it and we'll pay you? Mm -hmm. And he said weeks went by and he sort of forgot about it. And then this, this started to unravel, you know, and then um, 
you know, he was contacted and then given these coordinates. And at first he was very angry because, again, he didn't know he was going to the moon. They were off-world targets, and he was sort of upset because, again, those aren't verifiable, and he was sort of upset that they had sent him in that direction. But mm -hmm. he did it. And then I guess somebody said to him, when you think you hit 85% proficiency up at SRI, write 85% under the blotter. And okay. he did. And then the next day it was gone, and then soon afterward is when he was contacted to go up to Alaska, which is the remote location that they went to for him to go by that lake to see something that was going to happen. Which Well, what does the 85% mean? Was that some kind of a spy signal or something? No, they were working in the early days of remote viewing. They were trying to figure out a protocol of, you know, because Ingo could do it because he's a natural psychic. And some of the other guys, like, you know, um, Joe McMonagle is a natural psychic. And I think Joe thinks it can't be taught. I don't think you could take a non-psychic person and make them psychic. So I think Joe is of that opinion to some degree. But Ingo felt that it could be taught. So they were trying to work that out so that the government could have other people other than the sort of random psychics that they found. They wanted right. people with security clearances, people with certain expertise to be taught. So in that struggle, funny enough, in the same building at SRI was Jack Filet working on a completely different topic. And well, Ingo would meet him at lunch. Jacques Vallée, the writer? was one of the early guys on the Internet, the ARPANET, the mouse. Vallée was very much instrumental in that. Jacques Vallée, this is Jacques Vallée, the writer? This is Jacques Vallée, who the character in Close Encounters of the Third right. Kind is based upon. Right. And he, but he's written classic, classic UFO classic books. Classic books, Messengers yes. of Deception. I mean, amazing. And he's in my Ingo documentary. Wow. And yeah, I haven't told many people that. I was able to get ballet. And that Ingle worked on for two years for me because his wife was very ill and then she passed and there was a Well, period and you've got, you've got so many people that this is yes. kind of, yeah, it's very historic. And ballet was the one that said to Ingo, you need an address because in the internet we're working on something called www this or, you know, you need a physical address. He said, if you can give the viewer an address, then they know where to go psychically. So he came up with the idea of the coordinate or the address. You mean Valet did? Yes. He was instrumental Based in that. Based on URLs, the concept of URLs, basically. But, well, but, okay. but remote viewers needed a target. In other words, it was so random. Like, you know, they, you know, they would say to Ingo, like, they'd show him a photo. And, it, you know, it's kind of random. And so with a coordinate, they would then give a physical coordinate. But then there were people at the agency that thought Ingo had an eidetic memory and that he memorized the planet and did it that way. So then right. they just decided to use arbitrary numbers, which is where it's ended up. And and we're going to take a break in about a yep. minute. But on the other side of the break, I want to go back to that coordinate concept because the concept, as you guys try to make it more and more fair and you're working with a person like Ingo, the concept is so mind-blowing of what that coordinate means when you, mm -hmm. when you really kind of untangle it. Um, that's what I'd like to talk about. So okay. I think – Bill's going to take us out. I, I, I'm with, let me, you know, I'm, I'm taking it upon myself. Let me check. I'm not getting any message from uh, Central here to take a break. But then they did say at uh, 11:08. Unless I'm wrong, it might be 16. I could be wrong. Um, here we go. I think. I think we're still five minutes out, but. Um, but I can't tell. Okay, so maybe Angel will stop giggling and. Um, He's, he's no chance of that, Nancy. No Emoticon. It's not helping. <laughs> so, Angel, I just, I, that's the that, that was a soft bite through you. See if you pick up on uh, uh, so when is emotion. Our, so, when is our break coming up? 
Um, yeah, hit the break now or in five minutes, whichever one. Okay, so let's. What's the perfect time that we should plan in the future? Oh, really? Um, eleven fifteen. That's really the the moment you, you should yeah, go on break. I don't know awesome. why you went early, but. Oh, okay. So now just I just follow Bill Burns. Just follow oh, Bill Burns' so, lead. That's all. Okay, so now I can. <laughs> so I can ask Robert. The one of the things Paul Smith said was that he was so impressed by, I mean, actually flabbergasted by some of the material that Ingo wrote in Penetration that he went to Hal Putoff and he said, is this stuff real? And Hal Putoff said, Ingo never lies. Well, that's actually, I did the exact same thing. I went to Putoff and he and I had never met and we were coming to the first Herba conference, the first time the IRVA was ever invented, and we were going to go there the next day, and he and I had showed up early, and we ended up having dinner together, and um, I posed a couple of really interesting questions to him, and, you know, uh, one of them was, do you believe penetration? And he said, Ingo never lies. <laughs> right. You know, and, and, he, and, and he's in a science sort of thing. So Hal gave me... I mean, I trust Hal, and then one of the other interesting things I did to Hal, which I probably regret doing because it was probably a mean thing to do, but I basically asked him if he ever flew on Qantas Airlines. And he yeah. said, yes, it's the world's safest yeah. airline, Rain Man. I said, yeah, it was founded yeah. in 1947, and today is, you know, 2014 or whatever it is, and they've never had a crash. What's wrong with UFO Airlines? <laughs> they seem to be falling out of the sky. Yeah. <laughs> So he he wasn't amused by that, but <laughs> so yeah. I mean, so when we come back, um, yeah. but but we're not leaving. So here we're not leaving. But I just I just wanted to get in a couple of things. Um, so when we come back. Uh, we will talk more just about follow Bill, Nancy. Just follow Bill. Mm-hmm. The origin of uh, the coordinate remote viewing, but I also wanted to segue a little into um, that wonderful story in the, in the uh, Las Vegas Sun, which yes. is, I, th- I thought was a really great detective story, quad detective story. And then maybe um, talk a little bit about um, your career as yeah. a rock photographer, because one of the people that I'm wondering if you knew, and if so, I'd love to, you know, disc- uh, to talk about a little, was uh, either, uh, were either uh, Barney Kessel, who was one of the great stage, Guitar stage players, guitarists, yeah. and yeah. his son Dan Kessel, who actually hung around with the Rooney Brothers uh, during the mid-60s um, yeah. in that whole Sunset Strip scene. I didn't know Barney, but I certainly knew some of the other guys in the Wrecking Crew and all of that very well. Um, but There's a great my movie thing was called more Rock, so I was hanging around Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and Errol Smith, <laughs> that bunch. And how did you? How did 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 you start out uh, as a as a rock and roll photographer or a sort of a general purpose photographer or what kind? Well, I, um, the thing was, is I grew up in Hawaii. My parents were missionaries and very restricted Southern Baptist. We weren't allowed to go to movies, couldn't watch TV really, couldn't play cards, you know, that sort of thing. And that worked out for you, I guess. <laughs> it did, because uh, I had a little wow. radio, um, a little transistor, and I was able to hear music. And I snuck out in 1965 to go see the Rolling Stones play. Wow. And wow. in Honolulu. And there were so many flashbulbs going off. There was so much craziness going on. And I, my, my skin became electric. And I just said, whatever this is, i got to be part of it. And how long between that moment did you get to become part of it? Well, I decided I had found some magazines in Waikiki actually a little bit before the Stones, which is how I knew who they were. And they were British music magazines. 
which were non sequiturs to us in Hawaii, and there were all these pictures of very long-haired, weirded people in it, uh, and they obviously were musicians, and, and they had really strange names like The Who and The Yardbirds and pretty yeah. things. And there was a record catalog I could send away for, and I ordered all of those records. And I had them before they actually were released in the U.S. And I was taking them around to the radio stations and all these different people saying, hey, you got to hear this music. But I decided I needed to get to London, and I was 15 years old. I became huh. a travel agent, and by the time I was 16, I got two first-class passes anywhere in the world every year. So I went wow. to London at 16, first-class first class on British Airways, yeah. or it's BOAC back then, and wow. was right in the middle of all of that madness wow. in London. And that movie Blow Up was being done, and it was about a photographer shooting rock bands and models, and I said, this is what I could do. And I went wow. back to Hawaii, caddied to get my equipment, the war was raging. My parents wanted me to go to college. I saw Bill Graham was going to have everybody at the Fillmore in 1968, found San Francisco Art Institute, where Leibowitz was a fellow classmate of mine. Wow. And basically, I hung out at the Fillmore and shot this, all the archetype bands, and that's how it started. <laughs> this isn't William Goy and the writer, is it? No. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so we are now at our break. We've done Yes, it. sir. Yes. So uh, we are your co. So we'll be back uh, with our guest Robert Knight telling some fascinating stories. And folks, stay with us because you will love this detective story uh, from uh, Robert Knight. We're back after these messages on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. Uh, back in a few. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. The UFO phenomenon, either we like it or not, is already very much part of our reality. I've been on panels with uh, military people who you know, claim that they've seen the aliens buzzing our missile silos. They have very large eyes. And, you know, I found their stare extremely difficult to bear. This is Martin Willis, the host of Podcast UFO, and we are here on the Dark Matter Radio Network every Wednesday from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is my commitment to bring you an entertaining weekly show that takes a hard look at the UFO phenomena. Are they extraterrestrial? Well, are they interdimensional? Are they time travelers or something we have not even thought of yet? We explore these questions with interesting guests and witnesses from all around the globe. In addition, we bring you weekly UFO news with Open Minds TV, Alejandro Rojas. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep your eyes to the sky. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel. 
Steel, and more. SupermanHomePage.com. This is James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth orientated discussions. We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network live at 8 p.m. Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on darkmatterradio.net, jameswagger.com for yours truly, and capricornmembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic, truth is truth. And we're back on Future Theater Live with our guest, Robert Knight. We are your co-host, Bill. That's me and Nancy Burns on the on Future, Future Theater. Theater on Future Theater Live. No, was, one of those nights, Bill. One of those no, nights. I was just thinking of the Dark Matter Digital Network, and I was going to say the Digital Dark Matter Network. Uh, sorry, folks. So close enough. So go ahead. Let's. So 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 Nancy, you wanted to bring up the how. This well, I think I think honestly the uh, article should come next because the article is so amazing. The the one that's linked up on futuretheater.com. Um, this is a sad story. It's a murder. It's very sad. It's um, but it's amazing. This is um, this involves the Nevada. What is it called here? The Nevada Remote Viewing Group. Yeah. Yeah. So Robert. Take tell us this how you guys did you guys bring did you bring it this problem to the group or did the well, what it was was one of my best friends that I grew up in Hawaii who disappeared and he'd been missing for a few weeks and we didn't know what to make of it and we thought you know it was his birthday coming up he might have been upset and we'd called some people they said he'd gone to Hawaii or whatever but there was a period of time there where you know it became away too long. And, you know, it, it just, we needed to look into it. And my wife said, look, call the police or do something. And she said, well, why don't you call the one of the remote viewers, which like I should have thought of straight away. Right. So right, I right. called Angela Thompson and I said, Angela, I have a target for you. And would you be able to do it for me? And she said, yes. And so I didn't tell her what it was. I wrote the coordinate. I wrote the question, where is the current location of Stephen B. Williams on a piece of paper and put it in an envelope and wrote an arbitrary six digit number on the envelope and then gave her that. Mm-hmm. And then she, wait, 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 you gave her that and she didn't number. open it. right? No, oh, no, just she's, I'm not in the same place. I'm not even in the same area. I'm in Los Angeles. She's in Las Vegas. Okay, so you just gave her the number, and and how? And did you give her the number how by phone just, or something? I think I might have given it to her by email. Even I don't remember now, my phone or email. But I just gave her that number, and she okay. said okay. And then about three and a half hours later, she rang me back and said, uh, "This is a person whose body is floating seven and a half miles off Catalina. He'd been murdered, shot in the head by a business partner, off the back of a boat. You know, pretty detailed information, wow. and it was pretty upsetting." But we had a kind of inkling as to who that was, having known that my friend was around these people. And uh, the next, that night that I got that information, 
um, we happened to be in L.A., and just as the news was starting to end, I was sort of falling asleep. My wife nudged me and said, listen, they found a body floating off Catalina. The medical examiner's got it, but it's been too decayed to know whether it's a man or a woman or any age group or anything. So at 7 o'clock the next morning, I called the coroner's office, and I said, you know that body you fished out of Catalina? I know who it is. And they said, well, how do you know? And I said, well, I have an idea. But his left hand, when he was in the ninth grade, he had the tips of his fingers cut off in a shop accident. Why don't you see if you can determine that? And she went about 10 minutes, and then she asked for my name and my phone number. And I said, well, is that him? And she said, I can't tell you, but someone wants to speak with you. (laughs) So. You know, a few minutes later, I get a call from the sheriff, and I'm giving him all of this information about remote viewing, who the person is, the circumstances, how it was done, the location, everything. And, of course, they became rather alarmed right. uh, that I knew all of this, and they didn't understand what I was talking about. And, um, and then I remembered that I had met the head of the L.A. Sheriff's Department with Colonel John Alexander several years earlier, and that he was very aware of remote viewing. And he and John were working on some things together. This was Sherman so, Block? Wait, oh, was this Sherman Block? Sid Heal. Oh, so, okay, okay. Sid Heal. And so I told the sheriff on the phone, the sergeant, that I said, here's my phone number, my license plate number, my address in Las Vegas. I gave him all my details. I said, in 30 minutes, your boss is going to call you. And I hung up. So then I called John Alexander, and I said, John, I'm in really deep problem here. I'm going to be arrested for a murder if you can't get a hold of Sid Heal. Sid needs to call his officer wow. let him know to listen <laughs> wow. to me. So John yeah. luckily was able to find Sid, who may have been in Iraq or somewhere because he did a lot of work with the Marines. Um, but anyway, John was able to do that. Sid was able to verify m- me and verify remote viewing and then worked with the police and and we're able to give them very good detailed information and then over a period of time um you know they were able to put all the things there they caught the guy convicted of him and he's in a life life sentence situation for the rest of his life so um and at one point i think the defense was starting to say that my friend had committed suicide and he owned a gun and uh through another thing the session i was able to actually find the gun wow uh Wow. So uh, it was a real-time situation. It, 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 it worked, and, um, and I think everybody was quite impressed. And then when the Las Vegas Sun tried to do the story, the writer had a very hard time because the editor was not buying it unless they could verify with John Alexander, with Sid Heal, with everybody on this. And, mm-hmm. of course, they were able to. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's, so that it, is it, a really it, good example of a real-time remote viewing. Exactly. Well, for skeptics, it's a good, yeah. good article. Yeah. yeah. What surprised me about the story uh, in the article was that I would have thought that the defense counsel for this guy would have gone bonkers on you're telling me that and then going to the whole thing. This is sixth sense. This is paranormal. These guys that no, you know, he's he's being convicted on the basis of a vision that somebody had in Las Vegas. I'm surprised they didn't do that. I'm surprised no, I don't that think they were ever aware of it because I think the police were probably not wanting to use that, but but they were able to build a pretty good case looking at the very areas that the remote viewing thing indicated and they were able to find their own evidence to substantiate it and convict them on that. 
You see what I mean? So it wasn't. I I see that. I'm still I'm still astounded that yeah. that sheriff's department um, that in the murder book that the sheriff's department has to put together for itself and for the defense that there was no mention of the remote viewers. I understand what they did, but yeah. I'm just surprised at the sheriff's department for that. I'll have to ask. Um, you know, I, I can't answer that. I'm just glad that. The, the circumstance was resolved in my mind. I'll, oh yeah, you know, of course. I, I lost a very dear friend, but um, but I think they were as amazed by it as well. I mean, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yes, I know those those two sergeants had never encountered anything like it. <laughs> well, just to kind of close up that whole coordinate thing. Um, that should let people know that you had a question and you wrote the question on a piece of paper and you, you sealed it in an envelope and you wrote a, a obscure number on the front. Maybe you get a random number generator or you go to Bitcoin right. and you write down the number and then you hand that, env- you hand that number. You let that number – that number becomes the coordinate. Now yep. – and it goes out into the ether, if you will, if you kind of picture it that way. Yeah. Or as uh, Jacques Vallée, can you t- – basically what you seem to be saying is it's almost like it goes into the Akashic Record as when Robert thought about the question, he attached this number to it. Therefore, if you can find this number in the Akashic Record, it will coordinate – it will somehow link – to Robert sitting down Absolutely. writing. It's you so weird it right to on. think about that. It's just so weird. That yep, nope, posits... That's it, and it's called Human Intention. And in the Ingo documentary, I spent a day with Bill Tiller. Um, and Is he... the number 42, by the way? <laughs> uh, well, that's the number, as you know. Yeah, that is but the Bill number, Tiller did a lot of research with Human Intention. He told me about where they took 10 people off the street arbitrarily, had them sit around a table with a beaker with a known pH factor and had everybody intended to change it by a factor of one mm-hmm. without touching it, they were able to do it, 10 random people. And yeah, yet, if you and- change the pH in someone's body by 0.50, you would probably die. Wow. <laughs> you know, this was just human intention. So you intend for that to be the target. I think you're correct in that. that my mind had associated that number with that question. I gave it to Angela. And Angela then passed it out to four or five other people in exactly. her remote viewing guild that were all over the world. They weren't in, L- in Las Vegas. They all worked right. on the target together. And when I was reading the old remote viewing books, I would, I would follow this procedure in which people would put envelopes within envelopes. And then they would put uh, seals on them and put, yeah. the, you know, and put them in. Say- so in other words, once it's kind of locked together. So how do you think Jacques Vallée got this weird idea that – Thoughts, or the Akashic Record, or the collective unconscious. Unconscious. I was. Uh, I think this was an area of study he was highly involved in, and one of the things that he really spoke about when I interviewed him for the Ingo documentary is that he wished there was more information science done on remote viewing than trying to use it as a military tool or yeah. a spying apparatus, because he thought there was this wide open field there with it, and no one had really kind of explored that. And as an information, you know, science as to what is going on here. Um, you know, when Ingo went to Jupiter, for instance, it took Ingo eight minutes to get right. there. Okay. It takes sunlight 45 minutes to get there. It's, it's the speed of thought. Right. Basically. But I told yeah. Hal that Ingo said it took eight minutes and he said, no, Ingo was there instantly, but it took him eight minutes to figure out he was there. And to process <laughs> it. Yeah. And to basically yeah. process yeah. it well enough to bring it back so yeah. that. You know, you bring it back. Um, wow. Um, and that's what Phil Corso said 
was one of the secrets of um, uh, navigation in space. He said that was one of the secrets that he said that the ETs had. Now, I don't know where he came up with that, but that did correlate. That's one of the things that Ingo Swan said about Corso, that he said he knew he was onto something because yeah. he knew the very same thing that Corso was saying in that book was that yeah. the speed of thought is much faster than the speed of – the speed of thought is instant. The speed of light does take time to travel. Well, I actually I, posed the question in an email to Michio Kaku, who never answered, because he said, you know, Einstein's theory says you cannot exceed the speed of light. And I said, well, Ingo did it. I mean, he went to Jupiter and faster right, than the and, speed and of these light. Are, and these are, these are actions that you can kind of uh, report about and mm. you can repeat and stuff. Um, another, another thing in the documentary I wanted to just touch on, it's sad, very sad and scary. It's the one where Ingo's, when you, <coughs> I don't know, the interviewer <laughs> asked him, did he ever find anything yes. that he found tr troubling? And so he, yes. his words were that it was a certain kind of prison for undesirables in a certain country. Yes. yes. Now, can, do you know more about that? Yes. Um, you see, the thing is, when a really good remote viewer gets there, in like Tom McNear, when he was on Mars, could smell it. You can feel it. You can sense it. There's emotional impact. And Ingo was so devastated because mm -hmm. when he first got there, he didn't see much. It was just like a prison, you know, and he didn't, he was reporting, well, there's not much there. And they said, well, go down, look in the basement, see what's down there. And when he went down there, the emotional impact of seeing all of these horrible experiments and all of this sort of stuff going on, uh, really, it, it broke him down. And when I did the interview, he started to cry. Well, where was, was it? Later. Where was it? Iraq. Iraq. It okay. was Iraq. So this was Abu Ghraib? I don't know no, the no. specific location, but it was Iraqi. No, but here's why it wouldn't have been that. This was, I don't know when Ingo um, recorded this, and I don't know when he viewed this, yeah. but he says that it was a certain kind of prison for undesirables, and it kind of gave you the impression that it would be retarded people, it would be gypsies, Jews. Uh, what, is, what is the share uh, song? Gypsies, yeah. three, yeah. Um, and then the going down almost gives you the impression of a Mengele type of thing going on. Yeah. And um, he seems, but but so when was the viewing? When was when was the interview in the first? I don't place? know the dates on some of this because you know um, that part of the thing I don't know. I mean, these were just things where when Inga when I did the interview, and then I'd have to sh turn the camera off, and then he would break down and get really upset about it, and there were other targets that he would have these very strong aesthetic impacts on, you know? Yeah. And um, it, it's interesting, though, because back in the last decade, back in the old days, Ingo predicted we would find water on Mars, and I got a text yesterday from one of Ingo's doctors that said, hey, by the way, Ingo predicted this quite some time ago. You'll have to check in the records and see when. Yeah. But uh, what I wondered was on the prison thing, was that tasked from high above, do you think? I would imagine so. Yeah. I don't think he would have done that on his own. Well, can you talk a little in our – we don't have forever. Um, it's mm. a, the show's going by like so fast. Um, a little bit about Ingo the artist. Ingo was one of the most incredible artists that I had ever met. And I was really much into surrealism. And I was really a big fan of Dolly. And when I brought that up to Ingo, he told me stories that he knew Dolly and Gala. Mm. 
and he knew all of those sort of people in New York, and they would wave at each other, and he would go high and go, and he would go high dolly, and all of this sort of stuff. But he started out doing this very surrealistic kind of stuff, but his paintings became more and more evolved in being influenced by his remote viewing. One of the few times that Ingo ever went out of the out of his house, he asked me to go up to the Science Museum in New York. I think it's around 91st or something like this. And he came up in a taxi, and he wanted me to see this presentation on the Hubble telescope. And Tom Hanks was narrating it. And they were showing the horse nebula, or one of the furthest nebulas that Hubble had ever photographed. And Ingo says, he nudged me during the presentation, and said, remember that. And then when we got back to his place, he took me down into the basement and brought out a painting of that mm-hmm. nebula done in the 60s. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Just in passing, do you think, Ingo, or do you, have you yourself ever heard of an artist named Paul Laffoli? I don't know that name myself. Okay. He's in Boston. He's, he's getting on in years. He's about our age. Yeah. And he his art is similar to Ingo's art, it looks like. And Paul Laffoli is a guy I'd love to interview, but he's, uh, again, a fascinating life. But his, but he, <clears throat> anyway, he's got similar art that looks as, mm. as striking. And when I saw, it's his name is spelled L-A-F-F-O-L-E-Y. And when okay. you look at his stuff online, you yeah. just, I'm just transported, I guess because I like structure in psychedelia. Mm. <laughs> and it's something yeah. about the structure of what he does. And I bet these guys knew each other. Um, I bet just, you they did because it was a small community up there, and yeah. and Ingo was in, in an interesting thing because of Cleve Baxter and Hella Hamlin and some of that. He was very much involved in the local art and you know the kind of the psychic scene in New York there for a very long time in the '60s and that. But he had a lot of other interesting things that he did. He worked at the UN. He worked. He, he actually one night was up in the cafeteria reading a book on astrology or something mystical, and a guy came in. He said, "Very charismatic guy with security," and came up to him and sat down and said, "Are you into this?" And he said, "Yes." And they had this deep discussion. And then he looked at the guy and realized it was Che Guevara. Wow! And, uh, wow! Yeah. So, and Ingo's had all these really strange encounters. Uh, famous people, Norman Mailer, Andy Warhol, that he knew in New York and had these very bizarre interactions with it and i've got the film well, he, he reminds me he reminds me of a, a sort of um of uh capote when um yeah. his youth his very youthful pictures or i want to say uh, he just looks so young and um yeah. angry and sexy at the same time you know yeah. sort of troubled and um and i was thinking also of the other fellow uh, ginsburg yeah I, yeah he, he knew all of those fellows too he knew he knew um capote and and, and all those writers, and um, right. he, he kind of makes a thing about, like, you know, being famous isn't all that important anyway. You know, I mean, he really kind of pulled away. He hated the drug scene, and that really is where he started to pull back. Oh, really? Why? Why, why? Well, he just never was into it, you know, and, and that all with Andy and all those guys it kind of degenerated into a very weird scene. So he never took any kind of substance no. to enhance his, wow, wow, no. wow. That's amazing. Um, he Jack Belay, by the way, and that didn't come out for many, many years that Valet was a remote viewer. Um, and what was Valet doing again when, when, when you met him and he was talking about the URL slash coordinate well, situation? Well, Valet was up at SRI. I don't know what topic. He was working on the early internet, DARPA, DARPANET or ARPANET. DARPA. Wow. Yeah, and I, I think he, had, he holds a lot of patents. And I, it may have had something to do with the mouse, but certainly a lot to do with the internet in general. And they were working up there. 
But Without he was war? the guy in charge of all the French ufology for the French government. Wow. And, and, it, and weirdly, uh, another early innovator, very early, is Vannevar Bush, who yes. many many people and, – and he's the guy who came up with the concept of, of what, what's called hypertext, the, mm-hmm. the concept of, you know, you press a button on a word and you're into a whole other universe. You press a link and you go and you, you keep going. Yeah. And that was created by this fellow, Vannevar Bush. Yeah. Uh, Who's who's kind of shrouded in mystery? <laughs> but I wanted to go back to the to the psychiatrist for a second, um, and and this is t- this is uh, Persinger because you uh, he's mentioned a, he's not so much a psychiatrist as a guy that studies the human brain. I don't know. He's a doctor. Or, I don't know what yeah. you would call him. But he's so not he's really a, a psychologist or a neurologist or something. Uh, something rather on that level. He he doesn't do therapy or see patients on that level. He's a head shrink. Yeah. No, he's not. He's not. Well, no? but uh, the the thing he's calling an octopus. Um, weirdly, have you ever heard of um, uh, a? Well, it's called a squid, and it's part of the whole um, mag magneto uh, magnetometers. You know the the magnet- magnetometers. Magnetometers, magnetometers. Yeah, I'm. I'm mm. not good at this. Magneto- that's, a, that's a tough one, Nancy. That's a tough one for me too. Don't this, well, it's yeah. called MEG. It's magnetocephalography. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. Yeah, and those are, and they, they, they have arrays of squids inside them. S Q U I D, which uh-huh. are superconducting quantum interference yeah. devices. Yeah, yeah. And does, and it's weird that he would call his thing octopus. Well, so. it looks like one when he, you know, he modified a basically a bicycle helmet <laughs> you put this thing on and um it's quite amazing and um but persinger uh there's some transcripts i could send you offline if you'd like to read my full interview and with it it got I'd, really I'd surreal because it went I'd into synchronicity it went into everything it was one of the most in- interesting interviews i think i've done in the whole series he is quite wow. an interesting guy he'd be a great guy to do an interview with yeah yeah, that's what I'm wondering because he says that – well, he says right out in the documentary that if he stimulates the same spots in an ordinary person's brain, they're going to they're gonna go yeah. there. Well, yeah. he's controversial because he did that God thing in the brain. You know, if I found the God center and I could stimulate it and I can show you aliens and I can show you apparitions that's and all of exactly that that he created with- in the lab. I but re- that doesn't mean those things don't exist in reality, but I can do the same thing here in the lab. And that's how I remember him. That was yes. it. It was the yes. It was the God helmet. That's what he invented. That's right. God helmet. That's exactly what it was. And well, we did a show on him on uh, conspiracy files a few years ago. That's yep. exactly what it was. I I knew the name rang a bell, yeah. and I knew he was associated uh, with remote viewing. I didn't put two and two together, but yes, that was yeah. it. The, uh, the God helmet. Indeed. He may have created the next stage because, you know, the, the, the protocols that Ingo developed with Hal put off because they were jointly done. Hal put off as much the father of remote viewing as Ingo. Um, and, and there was the six stages, and there were reasons why there were only six. They went down a lot of alleys and found dead ends, and they got it out of there. There's a very reason why it was a very rigid protocol. But his thing could become the seventh stage because it's possible now to possibly verify non-verifiable targets. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's well, how? True. How? Because they can try by your brain waves whether you're lying, exaggerating, whether a target is far away or close. Oh. So, so there are ways of wow. doing wow. the radio brainwave database on any given remote viewer to know where he is if he's on target or not. Well, yeah, wouldn't but it's the never going to hold up in a court if you say well, that we know. No, but wouldn't, I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
well, if you can tell the person is not lying, that's great. And if you can tell the person is truly remote viewing or truly in REM sleep or truly dreaming or truly meditating, it doesn't mean, though, that what they bring is real or verifiable, even though they're not lying. In other words, we've taken one thing away. They're not lying. But yeah. is it is it also... As in Ghost is it a real experience or is it a hallucination? That's the question. Yeah, I think the the last guy that I interviewed for the Ingo documentary was Skip Atwater, who ran Monroe of Institute, course. and yes. that was a very and he of course ran the program after Ingo left, you know, at DIA. Um, he was running the thing when Paul Smith was there, and he right. had some great Ingo stories, and you know he. But they always would send people to Monroe before they trained with Ingo to sort of precondition them. Really. Yeah. And, and and there seems to be some kind of a problem with the remote the Monroe Institute and the rest of the world of people. Um, all kinds of people get angry at the remote the Monroe Institute for some reason. It's sort of like is the is it the technique? Is it the fact that it's they use machinery? Um, I I don't know because that, you know no matter what schism you get into, you get people arguing over it. You know, I mean. Yeah. Uh, it's so you, you know, one of the things that I've been really good in doing the documentary and also just knowing Ingo is the fact that I had no agenda. I don't, I don't have an agenda. I don't want to be a remote viewer. I've been offered to be trained, turned it down. Um, oh, you, I thought you were, I thought you were part of that group. I thought no, you were. No, my wife actually has been trained by Angela Thompson and is a really good remote viewer, but I uh-huh. just elected never to do it, uh, for a host of reasons, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then I think after MK Ultra, they always insisted that people running programs did not get involved as part of the experiment. You know, so there were people that were actually weren't allowed to actually do the things that they were doing in the program, who ran the program. You know, that makes wow. sense too. Um, yeah. Well, um, before um, before we totally run out of time, is your documentary fully funded? Is it going to be available for people to buy or to view? Well, my we'll problem talk- has been that the, the people that allowed me, I mean. It was interesting because uh, I'm a member of AFIO here in Las Vegas. John Alexander was able to get me a membership, which is Association what is of that? Former Intelligence Officers. Wait, say, say it again. What is it called? AFIO, A-F-I-O. Okay. Wow. And we would meet out at Nellis Air Force Base, and about 60% of the people there are former intelligence officers, and about 40% are active. And And... One of the things that we did on one of the APIO outings was to go with a whole lot, like 200 people, mostly CIA and whatnot, out to Creech Air Force Base and had a tour of the test site, which I got to go on. And I was with John Alexander, and I said, is there anybody on the bus that I could talk to that could be helpful with my Ingo documentary that maybe I could get some help from the agency? And he said, go sit over there with that guy with the beard. So I sat next to that guy, and he introduced himself. I introduced myself, told him what I was working on, and it turned out to be Peter Ernest, who became information officer for the CIA for a very long time, but he was very active for 38 years right. running stations. He was a very connected fellow. He runs the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. right now. He actually no did kidding. an introduction for me for the Ingo documentary. Introduced wow. me to George Little, who was spokesperson for the CIA. I actually asked George if... I could come in and film for the Ingo documentary. And he's like, well, we don't exactly let people walk around here with cameras, but let me check. Tell me what it is you want. So I told him, and about four days later, my wife gets a FedEx at the door, and they had sent me all the footage that I asked for. 
and wow. said, please be, please go ahead and use it without permission. So I got a nice DVD of, of stock photography from the CIA. Well, I think you used a little of it, that little, that uh, mosaic on the floor. Yeah, I wanted that, nice. and, you know, just yeah. those different things. But different people funded remote viewing for different lengths of time. I mean, the agency was involved, Air Force was involved, Navy, DEA. I mean, all different people ended up, I think, at DIA. Mm-hmm. Um, it went through changes continuously. And then around the time that Nancy Reagan announced she was using psychics and whatnot, I think Carlucci thought this, this is going to be embarrassing, so they just closed the whole thing down. And yet, you know? when they closed it down... Um, my impression, (laughs) that's my impression. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing ever closes down. But your film is your film itself getting funded. Well, the thing is, is that my my friend, uh, who was the former president of IRBA, John Stower and I funded ourselves so we would Mm -hmm. have control. But every time I try to do a deal, um, with different people, they want to be able to one own the footage and they want to be able to repurpose the footage. And I don't want that. And the people that have consented to go on camera um, don't want that. And I have to respect their wishes because I could have them saying one thing and it could be edited into another program on a completely different topic. Of course, of course. And and who's doing the directing or not the directing? Who's putting the whole thing together? Because it's beautifully put together already. Well, um, we brought in an editor just to do the teaser. Um, Mm -hmm. But what, what I'm doing right now is working with the family the estate of Ingo because I'm very close with the family and we're trying to work out something in a way that maybe this could become, you know, part of the museum, even some part of it. Or, or is there an Institute or anything like that? Is his, well, that's what we're thinking. We're looking more like that because really our, the reason I did this documentary, the reason I even went down this was not a, something to make money on. It was a tribute to Ingo. I mean, Ingo is a person, not as a necessarily a remote viewer, but is a remarkable person, you know, and all the different things that he did. He was probably one of the most remarkable, bright people I've ever met. And quite controversial, and which I love, you know. And I who's, mean, doing a, who's doing his biography since? I don't know that there's anybody at this point doing it. There is somebody that was around him that ran his website and everything. And probably if a bunch of us could get together, we probably could I was going to ask you, had you, th- had you thought about it? Because I could see a market for that book. I, I did. And I would, I have a couple of books out with inside editions on my rock and roll photography, but they also do a lot of sort of spiritual topics. And I've been in conversation with Raul, the publisher about doing a book that would be a combination of, of his artwork, my photography of Ingo over the 12, 13 years I photographed him and, and a kind of a biography. Mm, okay. That would be so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and when you talk about the five-story brownstone, is that still around? Is that still full of it's art? It's still there. It's across the street from B Bar, if you know the area. Um, um B Bar, no. really? Worth you know? Okay, yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's right next wow. to Phoebe's, right near CBGB's. Ingo used to watch ah. all that carry-on go down. <laughs> wow, my daughter and her wife actually uh, played at CBGB's once. Yeah. And uh, Bill and I were in the audience, and um, I, re- I remember they had a when, – when you left the audience, w- there was a step that you couldn't see. Yeah. You would have – yeah. And I tripped on that step coming out, leaving him. My, I had to be carried out because I hurt both of my ankles, wow. and my daughter was so mortified because yeah. of the commotion, of, and it's her mother. 
Yeah, this is really bad. <laughs> so that's a, uh, the place is closed now, sadly. Wow. Well, anyway, uh, thank you guys. I really enjoyed it, and um, hopefully the yeah. world will know more about Ingo Swan. I well, would, yeah. I would, I would love to get the uh, that uh, Persinger material because um, it would be fascinating. That's a person I'd love to talk to also, simply because I, I did talk about him on television, and I'd love to. Yeah. Well, do you uh, think he's, he's familiar? So fascinating. You have no idea the depth of things that he's into. You just don't think about it, and then you well, start you talking about he's... synchronicity and things. How does that work? And its relationships, exactly. remote viewing, and it's, it got wild. Well, do you think he's aware of the God Particle situation in which another book called The God Particle suggests that in the pineal gland is uh, something making – the pineal gland itself is making DMT for when we need it. Pardon? The Higgs bison? The God Particle? No, no. No, this is something else. Uh, Oh, something else. Okay. Yeah, yeah. For a second there, I thought he said, you want to buy some. I was like, yes. (laughs) Well, this, the, the, this is um, DMT. The, the the pineal gland bathes your your your. It can bathe your brain in DMT in an instant if it needs to. That's some. Well, some basically, just, it's what happens. Also, there's a release of this uh, this I guess toxin is what to describe it or this thing uh, in your brain when you're sleeping. So it actually causes a sensation of sleep yeah. and that. No, but it's, it's, what, it's what gives you dreams, but but exactly, and, yeah. and it gives you your near death experience or your death yeah, experience. Also, yeah, it's a hallucination giver. I, but, I'd like to re-interview um, Persinger because he was suggesting that the Earth's magnetic core is the repository of all the matrix thoughts, all the things. That uh, 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 that makes sense. Why? Well, Why the- would he say that? Why? I don't know. That's why I'd like to go back there because he sort of was touching on that at the tail end of my interview because wow. he was talking about all these amazing things that one could get into at a conference. And it was just at the very tail end of my interview yeah. and he started to talk about a couple topics. And one of them was the Earth's core itself was the repository of all thought, all past, present, and future information. Well, um, where is he located? Well, that's interesting. Sudbury, Ontario, very far north above Toronto, mm. five hours. Okay. Wow. We, yeah, we have to check this out. This that is, is far south. north, yeah. But I wonder Here's, if that's because of electromagnetic something. Because you know? of the human, because human consciousness is a mass of electrons. They got it. And, magnets, and, elec- and a magnet attracts electrons. And that's yeah. part of the mystery. That is part of the mystery that uh, for the two minutes we have left, I'm just wondering uh, if, you, if, if, if this strikes you. The mystery to me about the statement, thought is faster than the speed of light. Thought is, on a biological level, the flow of electrons. So exactly. if the flow of electrons do not exceed the speed of light, how can thought exceed the speed of light? It's mm. a good question. That's an excellent question, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then you get into the quintessence and dark matter. <laughs> well, no. I mean, well, you're on the right network. You're on the right network. Why? Why? No, because you know my impression of that is just if if I were forced to come up with an explanation, and this is what I would love to test out, is the fact that the brain is a is a parallel processing unit that our neurological system is parallel. It's not serial. It's completely parallel, and it's compartmentalized. And the compartmentalization is kind of mediated by various controlling substances. 
And so it is the parallelism of our consciousness processing that makes it seem as though it's instantaneous when in fact it is still biological. In other words, it still conforms to the laws of physics. Wow. Sounds like a bunch of timey wimey with But but here but here's a thought here's a thought. If non locality is everybody loves non locality and, and the you know um the twin you know Yeah, the quantum but wouldn't it be great if all the uh, electrons are just scattered everywhere but they always remember their partner immediately. They're always like completely partnered with their, their twin and that's how we get to well, – anyway, it, it doesn't go on. It doesn't yeah, go any further. The interview Hal put off, he'll talk to you about quantum entanglement and remote viewing because it is definitely uh, yeah. a process where two things that shouldn't be together are together, which was also yes. a description of surrealism by Andre Breton. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Which is probably why Ingo and I like Dolly, you know, because that was the explanation, the chance meeting of two surreal objects on the operating table. I think it was the right. sewing machine and the umbrella meeting on the operating table was his definition. Hmm. Wow. Right. Uh, that is fa- yeah, yeah, that is fascinating. And, and that's also how Paul Smith tries to explain part of this, too, because one of the things they had to do was reverse engineer the science so the people who cut the checks would have logic, rationale, and science that they're yes. paying for, not some kind of witchcraft, even though this that's was right. science. And Ingo was a very much a science-based guy. He hated to kind of go off, like he hated off targets, like off the earth and off, you know, that, that actually disturbed him. He didn't care for those particularly because they're non-verifiable. But, right, um, and he would be you know, wondering, yeah. what are people thinking? Why are they sending him here constantly yeah. if we can't verify it? Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but, you know, he did Roswell a few times. I won't go into that. Um, he actually flew and met Ronnie Zamora a few times, which not oh, a lot really? of people know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I didn't know. No, that, yeah. that I didn't know. You what must come of... back. You must come back on our show. <laughs> and you got to I... tell the story of Roswell. And Lo- what did he say about Lonnie Zamora, real quick? Well, Ronnie had more than one incident. I mean, you know, the, 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 you know, they kind of say, "Oh, Ronnie had this thing happen." Well, he had quite a few of them to a point of where he went to a priest because he thought he was having demonic problems. He was quite troubled because he was having more than one incident. Oh, really? Because the, uh, uh, the most important incident is the one that, McD- uh, that McDonald wrote about, uh, yeah. the Socorro incident. But if there were others, I would love to uh, talk about them. Okay, we are out of time. So I want to thank right. my guest, Robert Knight, who I guarantee you will be back. Uh, please send us the Michael Persinger stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, Great uh, guess, thank yeah. you, uh, uh, thank you, Ronald Knight. We are your co-hosts, Bill. That's me and Nancy Burns. We are on Future Theater Live. Our guest next week is the Roundtable, which Nancy will write about. And uh, stay tuned for Art Bell on the Dark Matter Digital Network. But wait, but wait, wait. There's oh, Tess, wait, his hold guest on, is t- his guest is Tess Garrison. Right. And if you uh, if you have uh, listen, uh, Art Bell in, at the end of uh, the a while ago, always wanted to Make talk to Tess. He always wa- he's in love with Tess, and when Art is intellectually in love with a guest, oh oh oh, it's, it's gonna, gonna be, be great. great. Yeah. By the way, guys, Skywatchers Radio so, this Wednesday we're gonna that's have right. we're gonna have uh, Jesse Randolph on the show with us, and we're gonna have Mister Woolwine. Uh-oh. Okay, Jeff, Jeff Woolwine. Woolwine. Jeff Woolwine. Yeah. Great Jeff yeah. Woolwine. Okay, Great folks, show this week. Big week on the Dark Matter Digital Network. Thank you, Robert Knight. We will talk to you soon. Good night, folks. 